Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing upon your word as we uh, complete chapter 12 here. We know that there are so many lessons to be had, to be learned. And uh, Father, we had asked uh, that you would help us to retain the information. Uh, for, as I always pray, for our sakes and for the sakes of those who are around us. We ask, Lord, that you would bless this to our brains and bless it to our actions and help us to learn and be those disciples you have asked us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we're going through uh, Exodus here, Sandy sent me an email, and I I wanted to talk about this. Is that all right? I can talk about it? What? (laughs) First, I want to let you know, Sandy is like no other. She digs. I mean, she gets out the pick and the shovel, and she digs and digs, and she caused me two hours worth of pain is what you caused me. You know, so I, I'm, I'm going, okay, well, maybe that isn't just the way it is. And so I need to dig into this. She made a pretty good argument there. Uh, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to read the email. And I, I, want you, I want you to be aware of what it is we're really supposed to do when it comes to the Scripture. Because I know Sandy does this. And she caused me to do it too. And, you know, so I'm, I'm just digging this up and I'm trying to come to a conclusion and I'm going, well, I might have to change my mind on something. And then again, I might not have to. There's a, you know, a lot of information here. And that's what we're supposed to do is iron sharpens iron. We're supposed to sharpen each other. And by the way, thank you for that because it, you know, caused me to uh, get into the word. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read her email. And what this is concerning is when I was teaching you, it dealt with the firstborn in the family, whether it's the firstborn that died or the only the firstborn male. And so Sandy asked me about that when I taught it that particular uh, morning when we left. She goes, well, I want you to look into that. I said, oh, yeah, I will. And she sent me an email. And so I started going through it. And so this is her email to me. Also regarding what we had spoken about in Exodus 11 regarding the firstborn or the firstborn male. I have this info to back this up. Pharaoh was probably Manaphtha, I guess that's how you say his name, whose firstborn did not succeed him. He did not survive his father, but died early, and his tomb was never finished. This is according to the Blue Letter Bible, Easton's commentary. Strong says the word for firstborn here in Exodus 11, verse 5 and 29, and others is Bakaur, which is a masculine noun. She goes on to say, the Hebrew and Chaldee lexicon says of firstborn, of the firstborn, in Exodus 11, 5 and 29, in 13, 15, whether of men or of animals, in the former case, it refers to the eldest son of a father. Other scripture, which confirms this in Exodus 13, 1, consecrate to me every firstborn male, NIV, the first offspring of the womb belongs to me, whether man or animal. And then she says, Exodus 13, 8, 12, and Exodus 1, 5, where Pharaoh tells midwives to kill every male child, this Passover lamb is to be a male. All of this is to represent Christ's, God's firstborn son. Thank you for your consideration. Hug Sandy. And so that, that, that was the email. And I'm going, okay, you know, so I, I got to get into this. And at, at first glance, I'm going, well, you know, if she's right, I need to go before you guys and tell you that I think it's just the firstborn male. 
if I do some research and I come up to a contrary thing, well, it's probably not just the firstborn male. So I would ask you, what do you think I did? Well, I'm not going to tell you yet. Here's what I did. And this is what we should do when you have a question like that, just like Sandy did, just like she had me do. You guys need to be doing this when you come to this information. And you might say, wow, those weeds are awful tall. Can't you just tell me if it's a firstborn male or the firstborn? Just tell me that and I'll be good with that. God doesn't want us to do that. God wants us to know this information because we have sought it out ourselves. And so that's what I did. Now, hang on till the end, all right? You got to hang on till the end. Now, the first part, she says, I have this info to back this up. Pharaoh was probably Manaphtha, whose firstborn son did not succeed him. He did not survive his father, but died early, and his tomb was never finished. The research that I did before, and I did it again, on who was Pharaoh at that time doesn't match up with what Sandy found. That doesn't mean that that's incorrect or that what I found is incorrect. She said it is Manapta. And I told you before when I was giving you the message, the Pharaoh, it is so difficult to figure out who the Pharaoh was, and more than likely it was not Ramses. And that's the movie. You know, when you have Moses and Yul Brenner and Charlton Heston and all that, Ramsey is not Ramses. Ramses came later. But it comes down to uh, Thotmus the third or the second, Amenhotep the second, and then there was the first, and Thotmus the third and Amenhotep the second were both co-regents at the time, but Thomas or Thotmus the third had a son, but he died before the Exodus. I mean, it just you are starting to interweave everything. And so Sandy's guy may have been right. The guy that I read, he may have been right. We don't know. We can't resolve it. And so we, since we can't resolve that, we do know that there was a Pharaoh and he had a son and the son didn't make it. Okay, so we don't know which one it was. So I'm going to take that little part of the email and I'm going to put it to the side. We don't know. So it's neutral. Nobody wins, nobody loses, right? Then she goes on to say, this is according to the Blue Letter Bible and Easton's commentary. Strong says that the word for firstborn here in Exodus 11, 5, 29 and others is the cower, which is a masculine noun. And so she went to Easton's and that's what Easton says and that's what we're supposed to do. And that's in fact what it says there. And then I go, okay, let me dig a little deeper. Let me see if there's anything else out there. And I found this one person who was commenting on masculine and feminine nouns, especially, specifically, this one, this Bekauer. This is what he writes. The fact that Bekauer can take, in classical Hebrew, both a masculine and a feminine plural ending, in modern Hebrew, it takes only the masculine. So what they're saying is, now again, I'm in the weeds here, but I want to let you know what's going on. This person says that the old classical Hebrew, which this was written in originally, can be either masculine or feminine. But in the modern day Hebrew, it is only masculine. So, you know, this one, maybe it's on my side a little bit because they're confusing, at least Easton's seems to be confusing ancient Hebrew with or classic Hebrew with the modern day Hebrew. So I'm going, okay, well, I'm 
I haven't been able to make my point yet because one point doesn't make a whole cake, you know. Same with Sandy. So I'm, I'm looking at this. And by the way, uh, I do know this. Just because a mound is nas- masculine, it doesn't mean it always means male. For instance, um, God created them male and female, and he called them what? Man. And that, you know, that's like masculine. But masculine refers to both. And so that's a weaker argument there, but I just want to make you aware of that. And she goes on, she quotes the, excuse me, I'm just going to jump ahead here. Other scripture confirms in Exodus chapter 13, one consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of the womb belongs to me, whether man or animal. Now I'm going to transliterate from the Hebrew what it actually says in the text. She quoted accurately the NIV, right? It says in the Hebrew, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn, openeth whatsoever the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. I'm going to make that a little bit easier to read. Among the children of Israel, whatsoever openeth the womb, sanctify unto me all the firstborn. The word that is used in the Hebrew, firstborn, in our NIV, it says male. It is not in the original language. And that goes back to the original noun of this uh, firstborn, that it is always masculine and not feminine. Now, still hold your seatbelt. I'm not done yet, all right? So the male is not in the Hebrew, but it is in the English NIV. So then I said, all right, I got 25 versions of the scripture. I'm going to go through all 25 versions and I'm going to see which ones in the English put male and which ones in the English just put firstborn. Here's what I came up with. Out of 25 versions, eight used the word son or the male. 17 used firstborn and one used child instead of male, firstborn child. So I thought, well, maybe that's two in my favor. I don't know yet. And I got to keep on going on with what I taught because if I'm wrong, I need to tell you guys. And Sandy is keeping me accountable. And so I'm going, all right, well, so far I'm, I'm feeling a little better. I go on. She talks about Exodus 13, 8 and 12 and Exodus 1, 5 where Pharaoh tells the midwives to kill every male child. And she's making this connection, this connection between the male children that were killed and the male children in Egypt that Pharaoh said, I want you to kill the Hebrew males, and also what ended up happening to the males in uh, Egypt when they all died. So first Pharaoh said, kill all the Hebrew males, and then God came and he killed all the Egyptian males. And, you know, I really, I just said, you know, I'm going to push that one off to the side. I'm going to give it to Sandy. You can get into the weeds on that, and I think she's right. You know, that's really what the text is saying, especially if you go to the NIV. So I make it, to make a long story short, I try to make it my goal to look at the text, the context in which it is written, the culture, the intent of the author, and are there any exceptions to the rule. My conclusion on this is now I am more oriented to Sandy's position, where I say, 
I think it was probably the males. Except there's one scripture that moves me to exceptions. And what is that scripture, you might say? I'm looking for it. It is... Hold on. Anyhow, I can't find it here. I believe it's in chapter 12. It says that there was not a household without a death in it. And you guys can look it up as I'm talking about this if you want to. But it says there was not a house that did not have a death in it. Now, if you have hundreds of thousands of people, and I take it first literally, are there going to be households with only... Yes, what is it? 1230. Could you read it out loud or put it up? Can you put it up? That's it. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was a loud well in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. Now, if you, I'm a literalist when it comes to scripture. And so I look at this and I go, all right, if I take it on face value, if he says there's not a house in all of Egypt, is there a house then that would be all female? Absolutely there would because there's hundreds of thousands of families and even, you know, if they're just hunkering down together, there's going to be every household referring to every family, there's going to be someone dead. And if that's true, literally, there has to be some females who died. Now I'm going, all right, now, wait a second. So who's right on this? I, I want to be right, not to just for me to be right, I want to be right because I want you to be right because this is what God says, just as I know Sandy does. And so, you know, it's almost like this coin toss right now, like a primary or something. You just <laughs> toss this coin and, and we can do that. And so I, I did a little bit more searching. The idea of a firstborn of a family, if you start doing the search on it, for instance, there's the law of first mention. You go back and you try to figure out, well, where was the firstborn first mentioned in Scripture? And it took place in Genesis. And in Genesis, there was this guy who made a sacrifice. And he took of the firstborn of his flock. And his brother brought a sacrifice of the field. Remember who those two were? Cain and Abel. So Abel is making a sacrifice of a firstborn. And that particular word is the feminine form of the noun, which is firstborn. And so I'm going, okay, well, that's the English firstborn. Where is the first mention of the firstborn that is just male? And so I look that up, and sure enough, it's there, and it's going through the genealogy in there, and it deals with the genealogies of firstborn, and I'm not going to keep on belaboring this too much. And so I'm, I'm really not coming to a conclusion, except I have to pull back. Now, sometimes you miss the forest because of the trees, you're looking at all the trees, right? And you're going, where's the forest? And you can't see the answer, so you have to pull back, 
right? And when you're in the middle of it and you can't decide what's going on here, it seems like it's going to go left or it's going to go right. What about this? And so I, I just got the concept of the firstborn. What is the firstborn? The firstborn traditionally in Scripture all the way up to this point in Scripture and even afterwards, the firstborn is a male. It is the one who gets either all of the uh, inheritance from the father or the largest portion and it was always referred to as the one who had the strength like jesus is the only begotten of the father he is the firstborn he is preeminent he is the one and if you're looking for the typology it would point to christ and so i'm going okay but there does seem to be an exception from time to time but what's the general thrust of what you're looking for Again, pulling back, I think it is the firstborn male. But I would still say that there are exceptions. So is Sandy right or am I right? Yes, we're both right. She did her scholarship on it. I'm just going, wow, this is good. And then I did mine and there's scholarship on the other side. And so it's very difficult to conclude what is going on. But if I had to lean one way or the other now, I'm going to lean more towards just the male, even though there would be exceptions. But from now on, when I teach it, I'm going to say that. I'm going to say not just a firstborn mother and a firstborn father could die, and then there would just be the children left, and one of the firstborn children would be gone, and there would be a couple of orphan kids or whatever would be the case. Well, it may be the case, but it seems to point to the firstborn male. Now, another case of this that I recently dealt with was this idea of the Apostles' Creed. Do you guys know what the Apostles' Creed is? I'm going to read it to you. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell the third day and rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from thence. He shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, referring to the universal church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Where this came from is before they had the Bible all together, when Christians were asked, well, what is it you believe? This they would memorize, and this they would recite before they had the scripture together, right? In this particular passage, it says Jesus descended into hell. Now, I happen to disagree with that. I don't think Jesus went to hell. And somebody came up to me, and they said, well, I know somebody who disagrees with you on that. I said, really? And they said, yes, and they quoted whatever they wanted to quote. And, and then I said, well, what about the law of first mention? What about looking up in Scripture, ascending and descending? Because this is important. Did Jesus actually go to hell, or did he just come down to earth? Now, I want to show you this particular exercise because you're going to come across things like this, and you're, need to, you're going to need to go to the Scripture and discern it yourself because you don't want to give false information either. Now, the Apostles' Creed is a construction of men. They put it together. It is not Scripture. It refers to the Scripture. So with that, what I'd like you to do, and this is what I did, I'd like you to turn over to Ephesians 4, verse 9. Now, as they were putting together this Apostles' Creed, and you have to ask, well, did the Apostles do it, or was it their disciples? We don't know exactly where it came from. It's just that's what they gave to the people to recite. If they 
weren't able to have a scripture in front of them, let alone read that scripture. They were able to just recite this to somebody and tell them who they were and what they believed. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9, it reads here, What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? And this is where they get this Apostle Creed from, that he went down to hell. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So I'm going, okay, this is ascended and descended to the lower regions of the earth. And of course, where is hell? Anybody want to guess? It's down. Hell is down. That's what scripture says. Where's heaven? Up. Okay. So what if you're on the moon? Where's hell? It's still down in the center of the moon or the center of the earth. Now, remember this hoax that went around? It was back in the 70s where the Russians were drilling the deepest hole and they decided to stick a microphone down in there and they heard the wailings of people in hell and they made the recording and they come to find out this guy put this story out there just to see if the Christians would bite on it. And they did. And they published it everywhere. We found hell. I'm sorry, hell is a spiritual place. There's nobody at the center of the earth. All we know is it's down. That's it. And no matter where you are in the universe, hell is down and heaven is up. That's all we know. We don't, and I've explained this before, but I'll do it again. In the expanded version of the Bible, it says, we know exactly where heaven is. If you go to the North Star on the end of the Big Dipper, that points to the north because heaven is on the sides of the north. And that is up. And therefore, if you go out in a spaceship, go towards the North Star and keep on going to the end of the universe, that is where heaven will be. I'm sorry, you're just wrong. That's not where heaven is. Heaven is a spiritual place. If you wanted to go to heaven, it would be like in this room right now. It would open up and you just pass right through. It's a different dimension. It's not down. It's not up. It's, it's elsewhere is where it is, right? So here you have the lower earthly regions. It doesn't mean hell. Now you go, okay, but the law of first mention. And some people don't believe in the law of first mention. I want to tell you that right now. It works, for instance, in the... Uh, parables of the kingdom. If you want to know about the kingdom, for instance, the, uh, the smallest of the seeds in the garden is the mustard seed. You plant that and it becomes the mightiest of all the, all the plants in the garden. And it forms this tree and the birds come and land in its branches. The only way you know what those birds are is you've gone to the sower, the parable of the sower, the seed, and you find out the birds are Satan because Jesus explains it. And he also tells them, if you don't know this first parable, how will you know the rest of the parables? And so you go to the law of first mention. You see what it means there and you use it to interpret the rest of the parables parables well the same thing with ascending and descending the first time we see ascending and descending is in genesis chapter 28 verse 12 turn over there please flip over in your bible to genesis chapter 28 verse 12 now the patriarchs were who abraham isaac jacob and joseph they are the patriarchs right the first matriarch was who sarah sarai right and so you could go to the wives as well. That It was not a matriarchal society. It was a patriarchal society. And Jacob shows up here. He's on the way to, uh, he's stopping in Bethel. And in chapter 28, verse 12, it says, He had a dream in which he saw, in verse 12, he saw a stairway resting on the earth 
with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, were they going to hell or were they going to the earth? They were going to the earth. And where would they ascend to? They would ascend to heaven. Jesus descended. Well, if you descended, he must first have come from somewhere, which means he came from where he ascended to later. So these two verses are making a connection here. Also, turn over again to John chapter 1, verse 51. And I'm looking up all the scripture that deal with ascending and descending. John chapter 1, verse 51. And it says, He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so they're ascending and descending from heaven to earth, not heaven to hell. Right? That's what it's referring to here. And then in Judges chapter 13, verse 19, there was this guy by the name of Manoah. And his wife was there. And his wife was told by an angelic being she's going to have a child. And Manoah's going, who is this guy? And well, he shows up. And when he shows up, he has this sacrifice of grain and a goat. And he lights it on fire. And the flames start going on. And it says... Then the angel went into the fire and ascended. And, of course, that would have been uh, Old Testament Christophany, an appearance of Jesus Christ, and he's ascending. So in all of these cases, in Scripture, you never see God going to hell. You see him coming down to earth when it deals with ascending and descending. Therefore, the Apostles' Creed that says he descended into hell is not correct. And when I told this to the individual... They said, I wish you would have been here when they were making their case. It's like, it's just the scripture. I just don't do this. Anybody can do this. You just know where this stuff is. You read the scripture and you're going to be able to defend the faith. And that's what God calls all of us to do is defend the faith. We're supposed to know this. He wants us to be those disciples. He wants us to endeavor and dig and toil over it. And it's 99% perspiration and when you tell it to somebody it's one percent inspiration that's just like work how hard do you work you work you sweat you toil you push that pencil get carpal tunnel syndrome whatever the case is and then you get the check right the check is the inspiration but most of it is just perspiration you're working at it and so god wants you in the word he wants you fellowshipping he wants you in the word he wants you discussing these things he wants you to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within now we're going to exodus i'm done with that exodus chapter 12 we left off in verse 28 and i'm going to pick it up in verse 29 by the way again thank you sandy led me on that rabbit trail there at midnight the lord struck down all the firstborn in egypt from the firstborn of pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well pharaoh and all his officials and all the egyptians got up during the night and there was a loud wailing in egypt for there was not one house without someone dead there it is right one other thing on that it you may have some freedom to just simply say it wasn't specifically each house. It is probably in some people's eyes better to say it was everywhere. It was ubiquitous. It was, there was not a person who didn't have somebody who was dead. That type of thing. And so if that's the case, it could still be a male. It just depends on how you interpret the scripture and you have to be consistent in that. 
Now, going on, verse 31. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said, and go also, and also bless me. Now, up to this point, there is a context. If you're just here on Sunday morning, you need to go back and listen to everything else we have come up to at this time. This is the 10th plague. Nine plagues have already been established and been carried out upon the, uh, it seems like the first few were on the nation of Israel as well as the Egyptians, but the majority of them were taking place on the Egyptian people and they were onerous, they were difficult, they caused them to suffer. And of course, Pharaoh was hardening his heart and God was hardening the heart of Pharaoh. So that's the context. This is the final plague and Pharaoh was It was prophesied about him that he would let the people go. And we see that being brought to fruition. Verse 33, the Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. For otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. They took all the wealth of the Egyptians. Egypt was ruined. All their crops were gone. They were destroyed by locusts. Whatever was left was destroyed by hail. Their cattle were gone. Of course, they probably brought in, as Scripture uh, lends us to the belief, that they brought some more in afterwards. And even those were destroyed by the hail afterwards. And so it was just, it was difficult. And then you had the death of the firstborn, and then you had the tormenting of the, the insects that were there. I mean, it was just a horrible thing. And the fish dying, and the blood in the river, and blood in the fresh water, that's what it turned to. It was terrible. And verse 37 goes on to tell the story. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth where there were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. And this is where we get the estimation that there are between 2 and 3 million people. I've said 1 and 3 million before. It's definitely millions of people. Many other people went up with them. Now, this is going to cause problems in the future, but these are the Egyptians. The Egyptians that decided to go with the Israelites. If you were an Egyptian and you saw these plagues, do you think you might believe that their God is like number one? Yeah, and you, well, I want to follow number one. I want to follow the one who is winning, you know? So you would say, I'm going with you guys. I'm not staying here. Everything is ruined. And so they're going along. But there were people, some of you will remember uh, Keith Green. Keith Green, he had these songs. I have his full set, you know? And he talked about the Egyptians, and he has this one song, and you hear the cowbells ringing and people moving on and the bang of the sheep. And, and then they started to complain. What did they complain about? Manna. And you know what the word manna means, right? What is it? Yeah, you see it. And that's how they were fed. God fed them with manna. They would go outside, and they'd see it on the rock, and they'd go, what is that? I'm supposed to eat that? You know, what is it? And so they'd gather that up, and they'd make... And what would Keith Green call it? Banana bread, bread, right. And manna burgers and manna souffle. I mean, you could boil it, you could fry it, you could bake it, you could do all these different things to it, but it's still manna. 
Well, these people who were coming along, along with the Jews, they had a tendency to complain. You get into the book of Numbers and you see that a little bit. And so it caused them problems intermixing with the people of Israel, the Egyptians. Well, going on, it says it went up with them as well, large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds, with the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now, the length of time the Israelites, the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. And there you have the Passover celebration. Now, I asked you guys another question that was homework two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Do you guys remember me giving you that assignment? Okay, I'm going to get to that in just a minute. Verse 43, the Lord said to Moses, these are the regulations for the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. Any slave you have bought must eat of it after you have circumcised him. But a temporary resident and a hired worker may not eat of it. It must be eaten, verse 46, inside one house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. An alien living among you, which would be the Egyptians who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then they may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat of it. The same law applies to the native born and to the alien living among you. All the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. Okay, so that's chapter 12. And you have this caveat. The people that went along, now say you're an Egyptian, and you're going along with them, and the Lord gives the regulations for Passover, and you haven't been circumcised, and you're 40 years old. (laughs) Exactly. And so these guys come out, and they go, well, I want to be part of the nation. Well, they could probably dwell with them, but they couldn't partake in the Passover unless they got circumcised, right? And so you have all these Egyptians, all these aliens. You could hear groaning through the camp. Oh, you know, from tent to tent, all these males getting circumcised if they wanted to participate in the Passover. Otherwise, they were to be cut off, pun intended, from the people, right? And so you can just see all the turmoil that's going on. And then the Egyptians would get together. What is this? We got to do what? You know, they're just going back and forth. Oh, man, what did I get myself into? And their wives are probably going, <laughs> you know, something like that. I, I mean, it's just, oh, it's just, just a mess. Maybe I'm just weird in the way I look at these things. But that, that's what was taking place here. And so, as I asked you before, you had circumcision in the Old Testament, right? And in the New Testament, it's what? It's baptism. We no longer have to be circumcised in order to be part of the covenant people. Back then, you had to be circumcised in order to relate or be a part of the covenant people. If you were not doing that, you could not participate. Could you dwell with them? Yes, but you were never really 
part of them. You, you could be not excommunicated. You could be on the outskirts and they would tolerate you out there. But they would want you to be a part of them. And so same thing with us. When it comes to baptism, if you haven't been baptized, yeah, you should be baptized because you are identifying with the covenant people. We are called under the covenant of blood. We are people of the blood. That's why we receive communion, which we have here today. And so the question was, if in the Old Testament, if you were not circumcised, could you participate in the Passover? The answer is no, you couldn't. And so I asked the question, can you receive communion if you haven't been baptized? (laughs) Have you guys actually looked this up? I know some scholars... Uh, road scholars, as soon as I was outside, people were coming up. Well, I talked to so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And they said, yes, you can. L- let me rephrase it. Should you take communion if you haven't been baptized? Oh, that's a, like a whole nother dimension, right? Should you get baptized if you were a Christian? Should you be baptized if you receive communion? See, there's this reluctance. You're going to make, you're dragging me to this conclusion. And I don't know if I want to be dragged over there because that's like legalism, right? You have to be baptized in order to receive communion. And then the question I ask, can you receive communion if you're not baptized? The answer is yes, you can, you can, you can do it, right? Should you? No, you shouldn't. And the reason I say that is because is it an act of disobedience if you're not baptized? It's a command, right? And so if it assumes when you receive communion that you're baptized. Now, does that lead to problems? Now, stick with me, all right? Don't just get up and walk out and say, that's it, I'm out of here. Just, just relax a little bit, all right? I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He's ruining my theology here. Just hold on, all right? Just relax. Just calm down. Take a deep breath. Cleansing breath, just like pregnancy. Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. It says, therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. And so if you are receiving communion, you are recognizing the body of the Lord. How do you recognize the body of the Lord? I thought you would never ask. Look at verse 26. It says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim or recognize the Lord's death until he comes. Hmm. You're saying God died 
right? How do we proclaim God died? We get baptized. We go into the water, just like him. We go through the death, and we come out. Now, should you take communion if you're not baptized? I believe the answer is no. But if you know this, and you haven't been baptized yet, and you go, Lord, you know what I know. You know how I feel. I want to take communion. If you understand all that, and you're committed to getting baptized, I'd say, take communion. You bet. The Lord knows that. He's not going to come up to us and say, you haven't been baptized yet. You might get sick. You know, something like He's not going to do that. He knows that you want to get baptized, right? We just, we don't have a baptism up here, baptismal. If we did, we'd bring you up right now. We'd put you in the water. But if you say, I just ain't doing it. You know, just look. If you want to be disobedient, be disobedient. And I'm not doing this to make you feel guilty. I'm doing this so that you can have the blessing, that you can be part of the fellowship. That was the purpose of the circumcision in the Old Testament. So you have a part of the, the body. You would be in fellowship with the people. You wouldn't be excluded from the most important event in the Israelite history. That's the point. And so there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus and you're doing, to obey is better than sacrifice, right? And so obedience, God wants obedience. That's just who, what he wants from us. And it's for our benefit. It's not for our detriment. And so my conclusion on this is, can you? Yes. Should you? No. But if you want to get baptized, take it. That's the way it works. But if you have no intention of getting baptized for whatever reason, just let it pass by because God knows our hearts and he will judge us in that even while we're here. And that's what the people were doing there. And this had to do with the feast, the agape feast and withholding bread, not recognizing the body, the death of Christ, the sacrifice for all. And that's how we do it. Now, what we're going to do at this time is we're going to actually receive communion as the worship team would come up. We're going to play a song. And as we're playing the song, you know, if you, if you've done that and you go, God, I didn't know, Please forgive me. I'm going to get baptized because I want to be part of the covenant people. I want to be recognized with them. Not that I'm not saved, but, you know, I want to be obedient. You just say, God, forgive me for that. And you just receive communion. And hopefully we'll all go on to maturity. So if you guys would come forward and go ahead and pass this out, and we'll sing our song.